Who is, I want to start, who's a runner? Who's a runner? You raise your hand. Runners, no one, if you're watching online, no one in the room is a runner. You're my type of people. You're my type of people. The only time I'm running is if I'm being chased and I've got to be somewhat convinced that I'm going to outrun this thing. Otherwise, why run in my last moments of life? It doesn't even, like, you know what I'm saying? Like if a bear could run fast, I'm not going to outrun it. Like it's just over. Just I'm just going to take this. And so none of you are runners. Uh, do any of you aspire to be a runner? You're like, yeah, that'd be cool someday. Yeah, some of you, you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, well, this is, have you heard of the Ironman triathlon? Yeah, you've heard of that, right? Yeah, okay. So you're not runners, but we've heard of it. We just had it in Madison uh, either last month or the month before. Uh, do you guys know what is all involved in that? Have you ever looked into that? You got to um, swim 2.4 miles. So that's how we, we're going to start swimming 2.4 miles. Then we're going to bike 112 miles. We're going to bike 112 miles. And then we're going to run 26 Point two miles. That's a marathon, people. That's a marathon. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm go out golfing, I decide I can't walk the four miles over the course of the next four hours, and I opt for the old golf cart. Okay, uh, that shows you where I'm at in life. I can't imagine people pay to do this. They're not paying people to do this. People pay to do this. I mean, you've got to have and and you've got to have a controlled lifestyle. I tried running a half marathon. I did run a half marathon, and I almost, that's the last time I ran. I'm still recovering. It's like 10 years ago. I'm still recovering emotionally and psychologically. I mean, physically, I've recovered. But, um, and I trained a lot for that. I followed the training program, and then I actually ran it. Now, this is the worst. This is the worst. Why do people? And, and people are finishing the finish line. Actually, it's funny. Uh, I should have got a picture. I wasn't going to talk about this. But there's a picture, and all these people finishing the finish line, and they're like, I literally look like I'm going to die. Like my finish line photo is like, I'm about to throw up, get out of the way. I didn't, I was white as a ghost. I mean, I'm already kind of tinted that way, but I was so white. I was, I was ready to die. I look like I aged 50 years over the course of the last, I don't know how long it took me to run it, 10 hours, uh, probably 12 miles or whatever. But, um, and then I'm thinking like, can you imagine you just swam for two and a half miles and you just bike for 112 and you get off the bike and then you're like, now I got to run a marathon. I can't, I can't imagine. That is just so beyond my ability to comprehend that, that, that people um, do that. And you do, you, so you gotta, you can't just show up and do that, right? I mean, like, obviously this takes not just months of training. That's what I did for my half marathon. I did months of training, like half a year, which seemed so significant. Half a year to train for one race. Well, the people who do the Ironman, they train for years. And it's like a total body makeover. I mean, it's it's swimming, it's biking, it's running, it's all that, but it's a, it's a little bit of weights and it's it's what kind of outfit are you going to wear when you do it? Because you're certainly not going to wear like a winter coat, right? When you're out here running this thing. And so there, it's everything and it's diet. They meticulously pick out everything. I mean, there's almost nothing unintentional about someone who does an Ironman triathlon. And I bring this up because the author of Hebrews has been talking about persevering. And maybe there's not a greater example in modern society of perseverance than somebody who's 60 miles into a bike ride who says, I'm going to do this again, and then I'm going to run for almost another 30 miles. There might not be a better example of perseverance. And it's going to be challenging. Anything that we're going to do in life is going to be challenging, let alone our spiritual walks. And comparing our spiritual walks, our spiritual runs, our spiritual marathons, our spiritual triathlons to the Ironman, uh, 
is a good analogy, and not one that I've come up with. The author of Hebrews is going to talk about it today in, in the passages that we're studying in Hebrews chapter 12. And so if you want to follow along with us, we have the house Bibles all around you. I will have the words on the screen. Of course, you can use your smartphone and Bible app. Uh, but we're going to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're at in our, our series. We're in part three, where we're in the third series going through Hebrews. And so we've been on this journey for about two years, I want to say a year and a half, two years. We haven't done a straight shot. This is only week 27 or something, but uh, we work these series in where we go word by word through books of the Bible. We've done Colossians, we've done Jude, now we're doing uh, Hebrews. And in part one, it was about finding our faith, uh, which isn't a concept that we came up with. It was written in Hebrews. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, or she's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, that has kind of transferred and let go of all of this old covenant Judaism. And now they're doing all of this new stuff. And they're, they're wondering if they made a mistake. Like, did we make a mistake? Why do we believe what we believe? And so that was kind of the first part of the series. Those are questions that we can have today. Maybe not we've left Judaism, but we live in a pluralistic society. And there's Islam, there's uh, Hinduism, there's all sorts of different faiths out there. And there's, there's combinations of faith or all paths lead to God. And so you might have been one of those people who have asked the questions, are, are we sure about the path that I am on? And that is what the first series did. And again, those are all available online if you want to go back. The middle part of the series was called Losing My Religion. And that was, again, going back to these people who lived under the old covenant, not just their whole lives, but like their whole generation had lived this way. Their parents' generation lived this way. This was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of trying to get Levitical law right. We talk about the Pharisees a lot with Jesus, these religious teachers who followed the rules well. And now we have Jesus coming on the scene, and he does, and he kind of upends a lot of that stuff. And so we talk throughout this whole middle portion of Hebrews, we're under a new covenant, it's not the old covenant anymore. We're not sacrificing bulls anymore at the altar of God because Jesus died for our sins. And we don't have priests anymore, high priests anymore, the only ones allowed in the temple, the only ones allowed to talk to God because we have a higher priest than Jesus. So now we can all come to the throne room of God. And so this was about losing their religion, their Judaism religion. And now we're getting into this final part, which is like, well, you know, and just for the record, Jesus didn't start a new religion. This was something that was always predicted in the Old Testament. It was always looking forward to Jesus, all the way back to the first couple of chapters of Genesis, in which when we're hearing about the curse, we, we read that someday Eve's son is going to step on the snake's head. This is a prophecy of Jesus. Someday he's going to overcome the, the curse of sin. And so he didn't start a new religion. And when we do this, when we find our faith, and when we lose our religion, we can begin to live like never before. And a big key critical aspect of that is perseverance. And so, as I said, we're in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read today's passage, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Last week, we did the entire 11th chapter of Hebrews. It's that hall of faith where we're, we're going all the way back to Abraham and talk about the great faith that they had and, and Abel and working our way. This is what they did because of faith. And so 
he's transitioning here. Again, they didn't have chapters and verses when this was first written. And so this was the transition. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd, and he's referring to the people he just talked about. As a matter of fact, he uses a Greek word. Uh, your translation, if you're using a different one, might say a cloud of witness. And you might say, why is he saying a cloud? Really just popular in Greek culture, in Greek literature. They would say you're in a cloud of whatever it is. You're knee deep, as we would say in our society, which is just to say it's a fog. It's all around you. So we have all of these huge witnesses around us, and amazing people of uh, faith. And then goes, we do this. We run the race with endurance by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And here the author is saying, but our greatest example, this is the climax. This is it. This is the top of the mountain. The greatest example that we have of faith is Jesus. And remember, primarily Jewish audience, Moses, yes. Abraham, yes. David, yes. We're we're good talking about all of those. Maybe they're not sure about this Jesus who came in and was causing all these problems. And wasn't that Jesus the one who was killed on the cross? And yeah, I know a lot of people said that they've seen him since, but, and now you're saying that he is our greatest example of faith. And he says, here's the example of faith. Remember Abel, he brought forth a good sacrifice to God and, and Moses, he crossed the Red Sea and there were the examples of faith. Well, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross disregarding the shame. That's Jesus's example of faith that he put forth for us. The cross was the lowest form of capital punishment in the Roman Empire, who ruled the world at the time and ruled most of the world. Biggest army. And what they would do to the just the biggest scumbags of society, the people that they wanted to humiliate, torture, kill, if you were a law-abiding citizen, we're going to make a point out of this person so that way you never even think about it. We're going to hang you naked on a cross. And I know our VeggieTales versions of Jesus on the cross, he's got a loincloth, but that just wasn't the case. He's up there and he's, and he's got nails. He's bleeding profusely. And over time, like what happens is as you're hanging on the cross, the weight of your body is just pulled down right by gravity. You're getting weak. Your muscles can't hold itself up on the nail anymore. So you slowly, as you begin to drift, begin to suffocate. And that's how you die. And, and that was the horrible. And they said, look at how much faith Jesus had. The night before, he knows this is what's going to happen. He prays, I don't want to go through with this. Can I please leave? But not my will, God, yours. And he goes through with it, knowing that this was his ending. This was the greatest act of faith in human history. So the author of Hebrews says, how can we persevere? Because that's what we've been talking about. He says, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the finish line. Whether you're running in the, the Ironman or your half marathon or you've got the promotion in mind or the next whatever step of life it is, you have that finish line in mind. And he says, for a person of faith, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Now, that's not all he has to say, right? Because that'd be a really short letter if he should have just, or he or she should have just began with that. The author writes, remove the weights around us. And this is an analogy, again, because we're not physically running a spiritual race. But they talk about, like, imagine running a race and then just having a lot of extra weight on you. Maybe that's your weight. Maybe that's just extra weight. You're, you're running with extra weights. I mean, the Iron Man's hard enough as it is, right? But now imagine that we're going to tie an extra 50 pounds of weight around you. We'd never do that. No, no one would want to do that. The author of Hebrews is saying, okay, let's just be smart. Let's be smart like the athletes. They had 
these games in, in Rome at the time. Let's be smart like these athletes. And like, let's not make this any harder than it has to be. We have to let go of the weights. And, he, and specifically, that the author mentions two things, which is interesting. Let go of the weights and the sin. Okay? So that's important because we get into this conversation where uh, some things aren't sin, but they're just not good for you. So it's possible that you're doing things that aren't sin. It's not wrong. It's not necessarily hurting you. It's not hurting your relationship with God. It's not hurting anyone. But the author of Hebrews says it's just not wise for your spiritual life. Now, of course, we're used to things like anger, envy, greed, lust, bitterness, arrogance, just to name a few. Those are the weights of sin around our lives that the author says, if you want to finish this race well, you have your eyes on Jesus. These are weights to your spiritual journey. These are the things you got to start cutting loose. But there are also things that just might not be a sin that we're carrying around us. Maybe it's people we're hanging out with that we just need a little bit of space from because they're kind of like a weight to us spiritually. Maybe it's a certain hobby. And it's not necessarily a bad hobby, but I've thought in my life this summer, maybe I'm golfing too much. <laughs> maybe there's a hobby in my life that I'm too committed to that's operating as a weight in my life. Is golf wrong? No. Is hanging out with people wrong? No, Jesus wants you to hang out with people. But perhaps there's a line that we've crossed that's not sin. It's just not wise. And the author of Hebrews is asking us to examine our lives and say, as we're running the race in our spiritual life, where do we feel the weight that is coming from? And we need to shed the weights all around us. We need to prepare to run a long race. Now, the author of Hebrews continues. We're going to read uh, verses 3 through 13. Think of the hostility he, Jesus, endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Look to Jesus. He is our example of faith. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the, Lord's discipl the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Remember in the original context, we had people who were defecting from this church. It was a small church, a lot like ours. And you had people who were like starting to question God, God's goodness. And one of the things that they were obviously questioning was they're going through these tough times. It must mean that God is apathetic. Well, that's what the Greek society around them would have believed. If bad things were happening to them, that gods were either punishing them or they didn't care. They needed to get on the, on the radar of the gods and do good things so that God, gods loved them, liked them, and would do good things. And now here, the author is creating a very important distinction between the Christian God, between Jesus, 
and all of these other Greek gods where if you did do something wrong, they would punish you. They would say, no, this isn't like punishment for the sake of like joy or pleasure of, of God being bored, but rather it's discipline. And the change of perspective that sometimes we're going through tough times because God loves us. Now, this is a hard topic and one that we don't have a terrible, terribly long time to unpack today. But bad theology around this, bad theology around us is what causes us to believe that if something bad happened to us, I must have done something wrong. I know a lot of you believe that, right? Like you're getting pulled over, uh, you stub your toe, something bad happens at work, you lose your job, whatever it might be, and you think, I wonder what I did to deserve this. This is kind of the thing. We think of karma. If I do good things, good things will happen to me. If I do bad things, bad things will happen to me. And that's not always the case. Okay, so one, punishment is when you do something wrong and you have to atone for your sins. So don't think of God's discipline as punishment because remember, God atoned for our sins already. So if you are in a situation where something bad has happened to you and you think, I must be getting punished, remember that's not the case because God already took the punishment for the bad things that you did. Okay, so that's the first thing that we need to clear up. The only form of punishment at this point for us from God is the consequence of our own action is to continue to reject that gift of the atonement from him. And then there will be a natural consequence that we've talked about um, a lot and most recently two weeks ago. But discipline is completely different from punishment. For example, um, you know, the author of Hebrews uses a parenting analogy, so I want to unpack that maybe a little bit more modern day. Uh, in our house, when our two kids, Oliver and Elijah, get in a fight or they have a dispute, a lot of times what Megan and I will do, depending on how fired up they are, we make them go to the room until they work it out. That's the thing. Like if they're fighting over a toy, over a video game, whatever it might be, we're okay, that's fine. Just go to your room and work it out. Shut the door. Is they're crying, screaming, yes. Do they know that they can't hit each other? Yes, that, that'll get them a timeout, which is additional. Uh, now that's punishment, the timeout. Um, but what we're doing in this act of discipline, which isn't like, it's not physical. I mean, they feel like it's physical because they're in the room and they feel like it's punishment because they're six and they're four. But what Megan and I are doing in this is we're disciplining them. We're trying to teach them how to have good conflict. Okay, you both have conflict. You guys got to work it out. Mom and dad can't always jump in and intervene. Do we? Sometimes? Yes, we do. Like with hitting, I mentioned. But who gets this toy now? We're not going to we're not going to micromanage this situation. Like either compromise, work it out so you both get it, or one of you just needs to give up. One of you needs to concede. That's okay. Like guys, in life sometimes our kids and I would have benefited from this. No offense, mom and dad, if you're watching or listening, but like I needed to be taught when to concede sometimes. You know, I, that was a hard lesson to learn. Um, I wasn't somebody who gave up, and I've learned that sometimes it's wise to just concede. My, my son Oliver's already figured this out. He'll be in the bedroom for 30 seconds. If you can tell all, Elijah's not going to give up, he's like, you know, I really didn't want that. Uh, and so that way, when they are in the room for like 20 minutes, I'm like, man, Oliver really wants this and he's not giving up. Kudos to him, you know? And so we're trying to discipline and we got to think of that as God. And I'm not saying think of me as God. Please don't hear that. But think of the situation that sometimes we're going through something, we're thinking it's punishment, but perhaps God's trying to teach us a lesson. Perhaps it's a situation that I've put myself in. I'm not sharing, right? Like my kids do. And so God lets natural consequences happen. Sometimes that's it. And other times, God puts us in a period, a season. And how and why? Those are just not answers we get a whole lot of clarity on in the New Testament and in the Bible. 
But the author of Hebrews says, if you find yourself in this situation, it's not natural consequences, you're not being punished, you find yourself in a season of discipline, the best question that you might need to just ask God is, God, what do you want me to learn? Or you can be stubborn. And like I said, sometimes my kids do this, right? 20, 30, 40 minutes in the bedroom. And all they needed to do was compromise. And so sometimes when we find ourselves in this situation where we find ourselves in a season where we're like, we're pretty sure this is God disciplining. God's trying to teach me something. Why am I in this situation? The best answer is to say, God, what are you trying to teach me? And then you to respond to that. Okay, this is what God's trying to teach you. So there's a little like tidbit. If you're in a season of discipline, you're like, how do I get out of this? Ask God, what do you want me to learn so I can learn it and move on to the next thing? Don't think of God as like some kind of cosmic parent ready to like just zap you when you do something wrong. Uh, think of God as like a personal trainer or a tutor. We hire those people, right? We, hi- we pay a personal trainer money. We say, I have a goal of running in the Ironman. I can't do it by myself. So we hire, we pay someone to yell at us. We pay someone to say, you're going to do more weight today. We pay someone to say, you got one more rep in you. We pay them. We give them money to do this. And I want you to think of God as like your free personal trainer because he's not charging you. Think of that free tutor who is pushing you. God says, I know the goals that you have, and I've got goals for you too. And I know the dreams that you have for your life. And I have those dreams too. And together, we're going to make it happen. And so I would, when I think of God disciplining, I don't think of this mean bully who's waiting for us to make a mistake so he can zap us. I think of somebody in my own life. I'm like, yeah, I, I pay a golf coach to tell me what's wrong. And I've got agonizing videos from a few years ago when I first started getting coaching from her where she'd be like, all right, do this. And now three years later, I'm like, oh, that was bad. That was ugly. But I paid her to tell me, and now I'm a much better golfer, and I enjoy it more because of the hard feedback. And it's not just golf, but it's everything in life. It's, it's coaching at work. It's coaching at school. You get that feedback. We want to take it, and we can do that through God. And I, I wanted to mention briefly just we do this at Medicine Church with our New Thing Network. So we're a non-denominational church, but we're in network with other churches. Some of them are non-denomination. Some of them aren't. Some of them are Lutheran. Some are Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal. But we don't get together based on an agreement of theology. We get together on an agreement that Jesus loves the world and wants us to start more churches and to reach people for Jesus. So what does that mean in the New Thing Network? It means that we get together once a year, and our churches in Wisconsin do this. We fill out a form, and then we send it into a national office in Naperville, and we all are accountable How many small groups did you start off with this year? How many do you have now? How many leaders did you start off with this year? How many do you have now? How many people did you baptize this year? How much money did you give to missions last year? How much money did you give to missions this year? And what are we doing? We voluntarily do this. If we just don't send it in, like we're out of the network, I guess. That's always kind of been a thing. I've never heard of anyone being kicked out, but we're all, because we're all choosing it. We're all voluntarily walking into the situation for accountability and iron sharpens iron type of situation where we say, hey, we want to be each other's personal trainers. We want to be so for the mission of Jesus because let's be honest, it's easy for churches to become inwardly focused. It's easy. It's easy for us to just see each other and say that this is the church and we're good. So we've got to be intentional. We've got to put people and systems in our lives that say, no, 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 no. You all are important. Hear me out. But don't get just so focused that you forget that there are a whole bunch of people out there too who could be in here as well. And so that's a new thing. We do that as a church. We should do that as people. Um, And then wrapping up Hebrews 12, verse 14, some concluding remarks. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life 
For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected and it was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. So we've talked about Jesus being the high point. And the author is going to just throw out a contrast as they've done this entire letter of somebody who's a low point. And in this case, it's Esau. It's God. Jesus had this great faith that took him all the way to the cross and through the cross. Esau's faith was so shallow that he traded the promise of everything for a single meal. And so that's the compare and contrast here. And the author is just saying, please don't be like that. Don't be shallow. Don't just walk away. Don't give up. You have so many good things coming to you if you continue to push forward. And I love the kind of first statement, balanced living. Work at peace at living with everyone and living a holy life. They're not saying do whatever you got to do to get along with everyone. They're kind of saying both. Follow Jesus wholeheartedly and live at peace with everyone. But don't live at peace with everyone at the cost of following Jesus wholeheartedly. But don't follow Jesus, I mean, and follow Jesus, but that means you should live at peace with people. And so they're kind of comparing and, and, and saying, do both. Do both well. Live at peace with everyone and follow Jesus. I think in our society, we kind of pick and choose. We say, well, if I'm going to live at peace with everyone, then I got to agree with everyone, that, that the, everything that they say, or not disagree with anything that they say. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, no, it's actually possible that you do both. You can have an unapologetic faith while living at peace with your neighbors and coworkers. If you're like, I haven't figured that out yet, okay, that doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means that you haven't figured it out, and perhaps there'll be something we talk about uh, later on. Now, uh, again, going back to this idea of like uh, living and persevering and, and making better choices, uh, I'm not a runner, I'm not a swimmer, I'm not a biker, and I have no, at, at all, I have no like desire to ever run in the Ironman. That sounds like torture. I asked someone the other day, I'm like, what do you do for hobbies? It was, a, it was another pass from Milwaukee. I said, what do you do for hobbies? Uh, and he said, I run and I go to the gym. And I'm like, well, it sounds like your hobbies are torturing yourself. Uh, do you do anything for fun? He says, I love doing those things. Like, okay, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> but in another way, uh, I thought of, of a physical example in my own life was that I was not a good student in high school. I did graduate early, but I graduated with an awesome 2.0 GPA. So I figured that's, Hey, that's classic Steven right there. Graduates early, but with a 2.0 GP. We, we don't have time to unpack that. I never studied. I never studied, and I partied a lot. Why? Studying was boring. wasn't going to read anything, and partying was fun. Now, partying is still fun to this day. I'm 34. I still like a good party. Studying is still boring, but my senior year in college, I ended up spending every evening in the library till it closed, till like two or three in the morning. One was because in my dorm room, I wasn't going to focus. My bed was right there. One, that was the first issue. My bed was right there. Two, I had a TV. Three, I had a computer right there and, and nobody else around me. But I went, I changed my environment to work in a library so that I had people around me who were also studying. People who were better students. I graduated undergrad with a 3.0. I was, I was amped. I was like, man, look at that progress in the four years that I've made. And then uh, I went to grad school and my GPA was just under 4.0 there. I got to be in an introduction to theology class. I was mad I had to take because, again, another story, but I didn't think I needed an intro to theology class. Uh, so kind of blew it off a little bit. But 
I studied a lot. I did absolutely no partying when I was working on that master's degree. We were also having kids and, and working on the church. So we really had to simmer that down. Um, and in addition, I got, I got extra help. Then that's when I started seeing the tutor and reaching out to professors. Like I didn't do that undergrad. I just went to the library. And then in grad school, I was like, okay, I need to study. I need to not party. And that is kind of what I want you to begin to think of your own spiritual life as. What are some of the things you need to give up? What are some of the environments you need to change? What are some of the ways that you need to walk? Do you need someone else's help? So for example, what do you need to give up? What do you need to quit so that you can have a more consistent prayer life? If you don't have a consistent prayer life, what do you need to quit? What's stopping you from doing that? What's in your life that needs to be more optional than praying to God? What do you need to do to begin reading and studying the Bible every day? Setting an alarm on your phone so you remember to do it before you go to bed. Setting an alarm on your phone so you can wake up early. Really not an option for me, so I do the latter. I do the or the former. I, I, I stay up and read the Bible. Who do you need in your life to help push you forward in your faith? I mean, gathering in this space is great. And getting together in your small group is even better. And that's one of the ways, one of the most impactful ways that we can get together to push each other on. People around us will help us spiritually. The marathon we're running, the spiritual one, requires a sustained effort. Who do we need to offer forgiveness to? What's the weight that we're carrying? The bitterness that we're holding on to? The person that we're not willing to love? And maybe today for what we're talking about, there's a hobby that we need to do less of or a hobby we just frankly need to quit. Maybe it means letting go of a certain possession or possessions. Maybe it's creating space between you and certain people, people that add a weight or things that add weight to your spiritual journey that are keeping you from running the race well. We need each other to motivate and help each other if we're going to persevere. And let's end with Iron Man again. I got a picture of somebody who just did this. I want you to think about this. They they just this is what they look like after ten hours. I mean, that ten hours, people of biking, swimming, and running, and they're about to pass the finish line right there. And the smile on their face was it hard? I'm sure it was. They can't tell right here, but I bet the water was cold or dirty. I bet when they passed that halfway mark, when they're riding their bike, they thought, oh my gosh, I'm only halfway there. I'm sure when they jumped off the bike, they thought this would be a good place to stop. But they kept going and look at the result. And how much better is it going to be for you spiritually that you keep going? Is life hard? Yeah. Is faith hard? Yeah. But imagine your face when you see Jesus, your finish line at the end of your life and the eternity that's promised when you cross it.